This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 76, July the 23rd, 1984. We're very happy to have with us again John Lofton, editor and columnist from the Washington Times. He's been out here for the Democratic National Convention, and he's come up here into the mountains to recuperate a bit. Mm. And we have also Otto Scott. We hoped to have John Saunders with us also, but he had to be out of town uh, today. Uh, John, uh, suppose you start off by giving us your general impressions of uh, San Francisco (laughs) and then the Democratic National Convention. Well, uh, from what little I saw of it, uh, I didn't care a whole lot for either San Francisco or the Democratic uh, National Convention, although they uh, resembled one another very closely. Uh, I didn't really get to circulate much uh, in San Francisco. Uh, I think the thing that uh, stands out in my mind uh, about the city was they did have a big rally of... uh, the homosexuals and the lesbians across the street uh, from the Democratic National Convention Center. And uh, I stayed there a little while because I'd never really seen such a thing in person. I listened to a few of the speakers, and and one of the speakers at the rally was uh, Congressman Ron Dellums of California. And uh, at toward the end of his speech, he talked about, or was screaming actually, about how the Democratic Party must uh, rule out the first use of nuclear weapons, and he said that this must be done to uh, preserve our children and their children's children. (laughs) And uh, all these lesbians and uh, homosexuals were wildly applauding uh, this plea for their children, which uh, to me sort of captured the the spirit of San Francisco, because obviously uh, while those people there were someone's children, uh, I don't think... uh, Many of them would be having children, and certainly their children wouldn't be having any children. Well, I understand that next door to the uh, Democratic National Convention, there was another convention. Yes. The Hookers. uh, The Hookers. (laughs) That's right. I I read about that in the paper. I did not uh, know that. You didn't go there. No, I did not go there. One one Hookers convention was enough. (laughs) Well, it brings up a couple of points. <clears throat> One was uh, on the hookers' convention, the cab driver told me that, uh, that they asked me the difference between a politician and a hooker, and I said I didn't know, and he said the hooker price is up front. <laughs> <laughs> this was a San Francisco cabbie. That's right, because you were in San Francisco Just also. Just a few days right. before, yes. And the other thing is that a new bumper sticker might come out of the uh, gay-lesbian combination. Uh, Sterility is wonderful. (laughs) Yes, that seems to be the temper of our time. That would sum it up very, very well. Well, if I uh, let me uh, comment just briefly an impression about what went on inside the uh, convention hall. What struck me... uh, uh, most forcefully about this convention was the utter lack of any representation of moderate or conservative Democrats. There's no doubt in my mind at all that had it been a secret ballot that Jesse Jackson would have been the party's nominee. What I thought of was the 1972 uh, convention which nominated uh, George McGovern. It was an extremely radical bunch there, very far left, and uh, there was literally no representation that I saw at the podium of the moderate or uh, conservative Democrats in the party. Now, the Washington Post and uh, the ABC Network took a poll in which they uh, uh, contrasted the views of the rank-and-file so-called Democrats, average man-in-the-street Democrat, with the convention delegates. And I'll just give you two subject areas which I thought were very interesting. In the area of the so-called social issues on abortion, among the Democrat convention delegates, 9%, only 9% of the delegates, favored a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion. 
the figure for rank and file Democrats was 43%. Almost half of the party uh, favors uh, an amendment to outlaw abortion, but only 9% of those inside the hall. This is a sizable gap. Also now in the foreign policy area, nine or I'm sorry, 22% of the delegates, people inside the hall, said that they favor uh, fighting the spread of communism, even if it means using force, 22% of the delegates. In the country at large, among the rank-and-file Democrats, the figure was 63% of rank-and-file average Democrats favor fighting the spread of communism, even if it means force. So what, what that said to me was that while Jackson and Mondale and Gary Hart and Ferraro may all be rapidly uh, pro-abortion and uh, rapidly anti-anti-communist, and uh, there's no doubt that every speech they made uh, along these lines got enthusiastic applause. Many, perhaps millions of Democrats, if they were watching at all, were sitting home saying, uh, this is not our party, this is not a group uh, that we... Uh, agree with. And I think that it is the moderate to conservative Democrats who will provide Ronald Reagan with his very slim margin of victory. And just one footnote, I think that's why you saw Walter Mondale, of all people, in his acceptance speech talking about balancing a budget, about a strong national defense, and even threatening to use the veto to hold down federal spending. I think the name of the game for the Democrats is simply try to try to hold the moderates and Democrats in place so that they don't leave the party. Because Mondale uh, and the Democratic Party, I believe, realized that this could indeed be the margin of victory for Ronald Reagan. Well, there's another interesting point it brings up, and that is I first noticed some years ago when the White House conferences on various topics were launched that those who were invited to these White House conferences were carefully screened in advance mm -hmm. so that there was an uh, overwhelming body of majority opinion in favor of the issues that the administration wanted to promote. I'm talking now about the Johnson administration in particular. That was the beginning of the organization, you might say, of the electorate, and uh, one of the men who was masterminding such a conference, I was in his office once, and he was going over the list, and he would say, is he a good guy? Mm -hmm. Meaning, did he agree in advance on, mm -hmm. the, on the position that was going to be adopted by that particular gathering? Now, the Democrats in San Francisco have put together what amounts to a quota representation, a sampling uh, which is balanced between men and women, presumably. Uh, I understand this time that it was 50, about evenly divided between the sexes, and I don't know what the rest of the quota consisted of. But the general impression was that uh, this meets the uh, civil rights quota mm -hmm. system all the way through. And what I what it now appears from what you say to be clear is that they also loaded it with those who were in favor of certain positions in advance. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I'm going to ask a follow-up question on this. Would you say that the representation at the Republican National Convention will be similar? That it will represent people who will be far more liberal than the rank and file Republican. Well, that, is, that of course is a good uh, follow-up question. Traditionally, I believe Republican conventions uh, have been more reflective of the party at large, uh, if not the nation, uh, than the Democrats have. I mean, I've always heard it said that uh, conservatives always uh, control Republican Party conventions. That, that, that's been the difficulty for the liberal or moderate Republican. He may have indeed run well in the general election, but conservatives, if they could do nothing else within the party, could always stop a liberal. 
or even a moderate. The press made a big thing about the conservative capture of the Republican Party after Goldwater. That's right. The first time the conservatives actually won in the Republican convention was the Goldwater uh, convention. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, the liberal Republicans always prevailed. And the You're liberal, right, because I am talking about right, since Goldwater. Right, and, right. and the liberal Republicans made quite a thing about the fact that the conservatives defeated them in the convention. They made that seem un-American. In fact, it was one of the uh, things which caused the Goldwater defeat and which put the Republican Party in the shade for a number of years. Uh, this time, the conservatives apparently uh, have more moderated in the Republican Party. If you look at the, the uh, complaints of the extreme right against the Reagan administration, <clears throat> it's that too many liberal Republicans are in high positions. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, I think we'll have to wait and see what kind of a delegation appears there. There may actually be a struggle in the Republican convention. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're saying it's a possibility a fight might break out in one of the hotel lobbies, sure, uh, as for any struggle, I doubt it. I think you're right that the, On the conservatives issue. have moderated their views and... Uh, they're going to support uh, Ronald Reagan. That this is going to be a gigantic coronation or a uh, or a pep rally, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's unfortunate in light of what Mr. Reagan is doing. I was reading the newspaper uh, this morning, and I read it yesterday, and I thought, gosh, I can't leave Washington for two weeks that Ronald Reagan doesn't raise taxes. This is very <laughs> scary. This must have been how yeah. Moses felt when he went up on the mountain and. Uh, He'd come down a few days, and they all had the golden <laughs> calf uh, marching around again. And he kept saying, hey, I told you guys, knock this off. Really? Now, here's Ronald Reagan. In 1982, he gave us the largest tax increase in history. Uh, it was something like a $227 billion tax increase, not tax cut, uh, over five years. Then we had uh, Walter Mondale at the convention saying, in the interest of candor, openness, and honesty, Mondale said, I'm going to raise taxes, so is Ronald Reagan. But Ronald Reagan won't do it fairly. I will, and he won't tell you he's going to do it. Well, a few days later at the White House briefing, Larry Speaks, the president's press spokesman, of course, is asked about, is Mondale right? Is Mr. Reagan going to raise taxes? Well, Mr. Speaks is not going to really say. But he did say that Ronald Reagan's record has been to cut taxes, but Ronald Reagan's record as president has no more been to cut taxes than Ronald Reagan's record as governor of California was mm -hmm. to cut taxes. Right. What I guess what Mr. Speaks meant was that Ronald Reagan's record is to make speeches saying he's going to cut taxes. Because, seriously, the thing that he has done uh, within the last two weeks is sign into law a at least a $50 billion tax hike and probably uh, a $65 billion tax tax hike, with only $13 billion in so-called uh, spending cuts in government. Now, I remember in 1982, Ronald Reagan wrote me a personal letter because I had slipped him a note at one of the press conferences. He wrote me a personal letter saying that he had supported that largest tax increase in history in 1982 because he got this deal with the Congress where for every dollar increase in tax revenue, every dollar in tax hike, he would get $3 in reductions in the federal budget, and this was a great deal. Well, as it turned out, he got less than $1 for $1 spending reductions versus tax increase, and in a recent press conference, he said that he would never again go for a deal like this, that he was burned once, never again. Now, within the last two weeks, He's gone for a deal, which is, as I said, $65 billion in tax hikes versus $13 billion. It is now six to one. Mm -hmm. So he's done exactly, again, what he said he wouldn't do. Just one other point on the tax thing. It seems to me that what Mr. <clears throat> Reagan is doing is he has indeed reduced marginal tax rates, but he is de facto restoring uh, these uh, tax cuts piecemeal by just uh, raising this tax and that closing this uh, so-called loophole and that so-called loophole. The tax rates still remain low, 
but he's piling it back on through other sources of revenue. Let me respond to the uh, the platform question. I don't I don't think platform uh, means anything to Ronald Reagan. He ran on the platform vigorously in 1980. In fact, in his first press conference as president elect, he was invited to disavow the platform. The press was really pressing him on whether he was going to carry it out. This was in his first appearance with George Bush uh, after he was elected president. He said no, that he ran on that platform, that the people voted for him on the basis of, basis of it, and he said it would be, and these are his words, cynical and callous to abandon the platform. But he has abandoned the platform. Most recently, just one example, in the military national defense area, the platform said that Republicans would restore the military superiority of this country over the Soviet Union because the American people demand it. That was the uh, phraseology, and indeed the American people do. If you ask most Americans, do you want to be behind, equal to, or ahead of the Russians? It's a dumb question. Americans want to be number one in everything. So what had happened? Ronald Reagan has explicitly abandoned superiority. This is just what Nixon did. Nixon ran all over the country in 68, saying he was for superiority. Then when he was elected, he hired Henry Kissinger, which I don't recall him telling any of us he was going to do. And, and Dr. Kissinger gave us uh, uh, parity and strategic sufficiency, all kinds of gobbledygook and gibberish to cover up the fact that we were slipping. And Ronald Reagan is doing the identical so the platform's not going to mean. I, I think it may be a hardline uh, platform. There may be a struggle over over it. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it means much of anything. In fact, in Newsweek magazine about three weeks ago, in their little gossip section called the Periscope, they had a little item that the people in the White House have now decided to formally abandon the 1980 platform pledge to abolish the Department of Education and the Department of Energy, that they're no longer going to, uh, that they're not going to reiterate this call. Anybody surprised? <laughs> not surprised. Not surprised, but uh, certainly disheartened. Yes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'd like to ask a question about one of the speakers at the Democratic Convention, uh, Jesse Jackson, mm did something unusual at any national convention of either party. He brought up, however wrongly and however much misused, the names of Moses and of Jesus Christ. He certainly did. And Would he you said, like to comment on that? Well, it's, no, probably not. It's rather disgusting to me to see uh, Jackson... Uh, do that. I say that because uh, I think he invoked those names basically uh, as a ploy. Uh, it was interesting that he did say in his speech text uh, that everyone in that room was bound by Jesus and Moses. Uh, now, I mean, that's really news. <laughs> you had to be in that room and see those people to uh, realize that how, how silly this line was for that group. That, that it struck me is that's one that's one of many ways where the Reverend Jackson, so-called, seems to uh, get away with things that uh, other people wouldn't try, or most other people wouldn't even try. And if they did try them, they uh, they would not get away with them. I'm, many of the uh, anchor people came on afterwards and really praised that speech and said how great it was, that it was unprecedented and uh, without parallel that someone would make such an explicitly religious speech. And I thought, now what if the Reverend Falwell, uh, or let's be really far out, the Reverend Rush Denny, <laughs> appeared before the Republican National Committee and uh, uh, talked about the, uh, the, need, the need to be bound by Christ, to bow the knee as Lord and Savior. Well, they would have they would tear the place apart and I don't mean out of adulation the network all the people uh, on the floor uh, for the networks would I'm sure locate uh, uh, the, the nearest Jewish individual or the nearest atheist or agnostic uh, 
to get them to tell uh, at length uh, and ad nauseum how offended they had been by this religious reference. But none of that occurred for Jackson. It was just praise to the high of it. Well, this, <clears throat> this disparity is uh, of long standing. <clears throat> They're very indignant about Mr. Falwell. There's lots of uh, anger over the... <coughs> Pardon me. Over the uh, expression of any religious faith in Republican ranks or conservative ranks. In the meantime, we've had a whole army of left-wing clergymen running around on the Democratic platform for years. Well, of course, Jackson made... Uh many of his speeches uh, in black churches and from the podium and uh, I remember all throughout the campaign uh, seeing news film where the uh, collection basket was being passed right in the church building and it was all to collect funds for Jackson's political campaign well you know it's an interesting thing uh Policy Review recently asked a large number of Americans, religious leaders and political leaders, intellectuals and so on, about uh, the attitude that should be taken in politics with regard to sexual questions. And the clergy, the intellectuals, the politicians, with one exception gave the most wishy-washy and weasel answers imaginable. And that one man who gave a letter-perfect statement, which was really beautiful, superb, was Howard Phillips. Well, he certainly was. the Conservative was. Caucus. He spoke out very clearly and unequivocally. No, they're ready to speak on sexual matters only if it's pro-gay, most of these people. Mm -hmm. Then they feel there's something political about the issue. Anything else is off-limits to politics. One issue, one side of one issue, is rapidly becoming the American pattern of public discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, I have never heard an anti-abortion... Uh, spokesman given a hearing on television or radio. I have only heard references while, to them, but yes. uh, at least for the last several years, I only hear those in favor of abortion, mm -hmm. never those against. And we could go down the line on all these issues, and we hear the public hears through the media, generally speaking, one side. <clears throat> well, that was one of the... Uh uh, numerous disgraces of this uh, Democrat convention is here you had a group of delegates who uh, not only do not represent this country, they do not even represent their own party, yet this story was covered up by every major network. There, I saw n nothing about this uh, on the networks about this discrepancy between uh, the delegates and the rank-and-file average uh, Democrats. We certainly saw no pro-life, anti-abortion spokesman at that podium allowed to give his or her speech, even though, as I said earlier, they represent nearly half of the Democratic Party. And they weren't even allowed one little puny uh, speech, even at midnight. Now, maybe I don't even demand prime time. They were not allowed at the podium at all. They're totally shut out. And I think that is going to hurt that party this election because these people know who they are and they know they weren't there and they're angry about it and I think uh, that uh, they're going to see in Mr. Reagan or at least in Mr. Reagan's speeches and public utterances an identity with them on these issues and I think uh, as I said that could be the difference in the election for the Democrats I think both parties increasingly represent the media more closely than they do the people I would agree I with think you. That's, I think that's true. And I, I think that uh, it's unusual to see the network commentators who jump upon Mr. Reagan's uh, gaffes and errors, if they find any, uh, with such alacrity, being so silent about the content of what they heard. 
For instance, Reverend Jackson was propounding liberation theology. He might just as well have made that speech from Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And yet it wasn't pointed out to the people that this was what they were listening to. Well, you know, speaking about gas, let's talk for just a, uh, a minute about uh, uh, what I think was Geraldine Ferraro's uh, first gaffe, and uh, certainly not her last one. In fact, she's probably uh, committing one as the uh, listeners to this tape hear it. It was very interesting to me that the Democrats seemed to start out uh, with the idea of waging something that I would have never predicted, and that is a, a holy war against the infidel Ronald Reagan. Geraldine Ferraro uh, attacked Ronald Reagan's uh, Christianity uh, because he had not been able to translate it into the federal budget, uh, that his budget was insufficiently Christian, uh, which is an interesting idea because Ferraro, as a Catholic, uh, says that as a member of Congress, uh, she cannot impose her views on other people, but she uh, takes Mr. Reagan to task for not Christianizing the budget, uh, which is to say imposing his views on the federal budget, which if you've looked at the budget uh, recently have... Uh, has obviously not had the views of any Christian mm -hmm. imposed on it. But uh, shortly after Ferraro attacked Ronald Reagan's religion, his Christianity, uh, Walter Mondale picked it up in an interview and was very eager to respond to it and ally himself with her on this issue. Governor Cuomo of New York has said, uh, in what I found to be an absolutely astounding statement on the record where the reporter quoted him in the Los Angeles Times, that uh, that he had encouraged Ferraro to attack Ronald Reagan's Christianity because Cuomo said, as a woman, I told her she could get away with it. This was a direct quote. Now, that is, a, that is a, a, an interesting uh, thing to say, and it's a very stupid thing to, to admit to a reporter if, in fact, uh, you did that. But my point is that that Ferraro has now tried to back off of this thing, saying that maybe she does have a loose mouth and runs it too much, but she did say that she was not sorry. And, again, I'm looking at the media's reaction. Good grief. Suppose Ronald Reagan had, say, attacked Mondale's uh, so-called Christianity because Mondale once went to New York and spoke to this giant uh, homosexual rally to get money and support and that Reagan had attacked his faith. Uh, there would be editorial after editorial. All the networks, would, their commentators would go wild. There'd be, you know, a hundred-part series in the New York Times. Uh, <laughs> they'd be interrupting TV uh, soap <laughs> operas with bulletins. Uh, Many cams would be chasing Reagan and his family all over the country to ask them to, to defend and, uh, th this attack on someone's religion. Why, it would be thought of as a scurrilous, hideous thing. And uh, to me, the story has just disappeared. There's been no editorials, no comments. Who but can't... it landed deep. I think so. And there's another element. Uh, when Mr. Cuomo told Ferraro that she could get away with it, American women get away with a lot of verbal rudeness, uh, and a great many of them lack manners and civility, especially in when they get on the platform. We saw this exemplified when the statements of now group before the nomination of Ferraro. Oh, you, you're talking about now the National Organization for right. Women, yes. Yes, in which they came on in ugly terms mm. with threats very coarsely expressed and so forth. Now, a great many American men, one of the problems between the sexes in the United States is this very lack of civility on the part of women. Little girls, for instance, are encouraged or allowed to say things that little boys are not. And now that the barriers and inhibitions have been released and language has been desexed, so to speak, there's no more polite language and impolite language. You hear expressions from women that appall older Americans like myself. Older, Otto? No, no I'm sorry to admit it, yes. But you're younger than I am. Let's not talk that way. <laughs> All right. But at any rate, what we have here <clears throat> sounds very much like what we used to privately refer to as a big-mouth broad. 
Mm. I, and, of course, have never used such language. I want not. to get that on the record right yeah. now. Privately <laughs> or otherwise, I have never referred to big mouth broads that way. Really? I mean, well, you know, one, one thing that's, that struck, that was very funny about this whole naming the woman on the ticket is uh, the National Organization for Women, as you say, did come out dressed in their bear skins, waving their clubs about how we want a woman and you better give her to us. And Mondale, of course, instantly complied and... Uh, there were a lot of talks that he had caved in uh, to these cave women. And uh, and one news story I saw seeking to knock that down said that, oh, no, 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 Mondale had stood up to those who strongly urged him not to cave in to the women, <laughs> that he had stood up to them by naming the woman, which I thought was a very Byzantine way of explaining his spinelessness. He had, he had stood up to those who said, this will be viewed as a cave-in, you shouldn't do it. But he told them no, no, and he named the woman anyway. Wasn't that courageous? <laughs> I'd like to get back to something you referred to earlier, and which you dealt with beautifully in your column, so I'm really uh, quoting you. When uh, Ms. Ferraro said that she did not believe in imposing her morality on other people. Whatever it is. Uh, first, she didn't uh, admit that her morality did not include a pro-life position. And second, the pro-life position is not any person's morality. It is not something that you and I have that we impose on others. But as you pointed out in your column, it is Christian morality. It's God's position. Well, of course, uh, you and I devoutly uh, believe that. And uh, I think you put uh, your finger on one of the weaknesses of, uh, of Catholicism, as I understand it, and that is they tend to speak about Catholic teaching rather than God's Word. So uh, Governor Cuomo uh, does that, and even Archbishop O'Connor in New York does that. So uh, one immediate problem one has in reading a story about someone violating Catholic teaching is, uh, you know, trying to understand exactly what it, what it is and how important it is because, of course, many Catholics uh, have violated uh, earlier Catholic teaching. The teaching has just been changed, whether it's about meat on Friday or, or whatever. So there is sort of that, uh, that, that way of speaking which is confusing. But that, that is absolutely correct. It's the old uh, personalization of the faith, which, of course, as you well know and have written, uh, is fatal to the faith. The idea that it is a private, personal matter, which I wouldn't wouldn't impose on anyone, because as if, if she is a good Catholic, then, of course, she believes Catholicism is the true faith, that it is the truth, and, it, and that it is true for everyone. Yes, but the argument is, is of course, a phony argument, and it is a, a flawed argument because, she says, as a member of Congress, I can't impose my religious faith on anybody. Dictated is the word she uses, but every time Congresswoman Ferraro has ever voted for a law, she has voted to impose that law, obviously, on anyone who disagrees with it. She, the law has been her view. She has voted to impose the law. It's a syllogism. She has voted to impose her view. Now, the interesting thing is that by declining to impose her religious view, uh, Catholicism, she has now said that she will not impose that view, which is the one I like best of all her views. So the only view she won't impose on us is uh, her religious view. All her secular views, she has no problem. Well, Governor Cuomo, though, is in trouble with his church. The Archbishop in New York made it very clear that no Catholic could say he was personally against abortion while being publicly neutral, or in other words, tolerated, and said that was in consonant with the Catholic position. He also said that Catholics shouldn't vote for anyone like that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the sad facts of our time is but we have taken the position the Lord requires of us 
and institutionalized it. We call it Catholic doctrine or Catholic teaching or Reformed doctrine or this is the fundamentalist position and so on as though it were the property of one group. Mm-hmm. And what we should be saying is, thus saith the Lord. Very good. Well, that's right. I mean, if there, if there has to be a fight, and I guess as long as there are people, there will be, it ought to be about what the Bible says or doesn't say. That's where the fight ought to be. It ought not to be about, do we turn to the Bible? That's not what the fight ought to be about. Now, you mentioned Arch- Archbishop O'Connor. He, he has spoke, spoken out on this question, as have the New York bishops, uh, rather forcefully, I thought. But see, the problem that faces them now is they've clearly got, uh, what, heresy? Is that what you call it? Uh, Disobedience. Well, I would call it heresy, of unbelief from uh, Ferraro, from Cuomo. So what are they going to do about it? They know that they're uh, not... uh, in tune with uh, the Catholic uh, teaching, we or we would say God's word. So what are they going to do about it? Is, is Archbishop O'Connor going to go all the way now and well, try to excommunicate Governor Cuomo as he ought to, or excommunicate uh, Mrs. Ferraro? I don't think so. Don't then, he, then they're going to have the worst of both worlds. Then you're going to have an Archbishop who's spoken out. Uh, he is ignored. I'm sure they're not going to change their view. Then the ball is back in his court. What do I do? Am I just all hot air, or what What does this church stand for? Anything? Unfortunately, people today feel the church should have no teeth. Or gums. <laughs> yes. And this is something that has permeated every denomination, every group in Christendom. And the clergy know it. Uh, so it's a good question. Should they... Uh, go ahead and proceed, even though, say, an excommunication may be ignored. There's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done to restore faith and the life of faith on the ground level. And today we have separated Christianity from politics, from medicine, from the arts and sciences, from education, from the media, from every area of life and thought. And the result is we are creating a national disaster, a world disaster, Mm -hmm. and invoking God's judgment upon us because the various churches may not deal, and they're all derelict here, with their uh, godless members but they had better believe that God will do so. Mm. Amen. You know, I've, I've read part of Governor Cuomo's diaries. Uh, I guess the only stupider thing than writing them was to have them published, but anyway, he did it, and I read part of them. And he goes on at length about his faith and the role it played uh, in his early years and how much it meant to him and his family and everything. And then he goes on to talk about the role of government and what he feels that ought to be. (laughs) And there's a total, absolute disconnection between the faith and what he thinks the role of civil government ought to be. It, It is just astounding that he would not notice this kind of thing as he wrote it, that his own eyes would not see the words, and it would dawn on him that this faith that he says is the root and the foundation of everything, in fact, dictates nothing. Well, which is uh, a dead faith, right? That's what it says. That reflects his behavior as governor on the abortion issue. Abortion issue, the homosexual, the homosexuality uh, issue. There's just no connection between his faith and what. And one of the things that that has interested me is I have at home, and I had told you this earlier, Rush. I, I have at home many books on Catholic moral theology. Uh, in the 1930s, the 40s, and even into the 50s. And all of them prescribe very uh, strict limitations on civil government, uh, on the role of the state in education. And it was interesting to me uh, the extent to which Governor Cuomo's views in no way even conform to what was traditional Catholic teaching 
on all these questions. He, he's like a, a, a religious anarchist. None of his faith is in any way connected to anything he does in his life. Well, he may not know what the traditional uh, position of his particular church is. Uh, there is no subject of which the general average American, and I have to include Cuomo in that category, is more ignorant than theology. It's absolutely been expurgated from uh, public education. Mm -hmm. And very few people go to seminaries. Very few people read theology or theological books. The whole subject is a, is a uh, dark, uh, it's terra incognita, so mm -hmm. to speak. No one knows anything about it. Mm. What this adds up to is that a great many people have religious ideas or opinions, we might say, that are somewhat like that uh, of a 12-year-old child. And since they don't study or explore the subject as they get older, they continue into life with what amounts to very childlike approaches to some very important subjects. Mm -hmm. And they substitute this lack of information and lack of basic effort uh, by attendance somewhere, uh, listening to their pastor, listening to their priest, and assuming that that's all that's necessary in order to be a good Christian. And uh, this gives rise to the general uh, myth that Christianity is a less than intellectual pursuit when, in fact, it's an extremely sophisticated faith which requires study and thought. Well, of course, it's, a, it's an ancient uh, problem, and uh, Rush has written about it in his uh, paper, I believe, about Bach's theology. Yes. Uh, it is the idea uh, that God is the God of the home, maybe, maybe, <laughs> God, God of the church, but uh, anywhere else... Uh, he has no application, nothing uh, anywhere else is under him. And, of course, this is a uh, fearful and dangerous uh, view to hold, not only for your society, but because throughout Scripture, God uh, comes down very hard on those who t attempt to limit his authority. Who was the uh, the one king, uh, the Syrian king, uh, who said that God was the God of the hills but not of the valleys? And uh, I remember vividly reading that uh, his forces, although it did not say for how long, his forces, which at that time were engaged in combat, lost 100,000 footmen a day because he had limited God's authority, as with King Herod, who gave not God the glory and fell down and, and died. This is a terrible, terrible thing to say that God is not the God of everything, yet that's what Cuomo and Ferraro have said, that this is just a private, personal thing that uh, I wouldn't let govern anything else. So there's sort of a footnote that's scary, is when you think about without God, the only thing that would govern Cuomo is his intellect. Uh, it's kind of scary what the uh, people of New York are operating under. If it's not God, then that means it's Cuomo, and that's... That's yes. kind of spooky. To be limited to his measure means well, that we're, we're kind that's of right. a little bit dwarfed. I that's think. right. Well, we do have a problem today because in every church, people are ignorant of what they are supposed to believe. They are ignorant of what it means to be a Catholic or a Presbyterian or almost anything. You name it. Uh, they just belong. They're buying fire and life insurance by being faithful to their church. But they don't want God to mess with their daily life. May I ask you a question? When, when did this start in America, the idea that uh, when God started, in their eyes anyway, started to sh shrink, like the incredible shrinking man, that he became the God of the home and the church? And, uh, of course, I suspect if you go to the home or the church of many of these people, uh, he's not even the God there. But wh when did this idea start? Well, in Europe, it started with the Enlightenment. About 1660 or thereafter, pietism began to take over. Both Catholics and Protestants began to withdraw mm -hmm. from the world of politics and economics and limit the faith to devotional exercises. 
In this country, it did not happen until after the 1820s, when the old Puritan temper began to disappear, and the faith was increasingly restricted to the devotional aspect, to the private life, so that we have uh, a background which is more recent of applying the faith to every area of life. Now, the only relic of the older position in Europe was that you had, for example, in some countries, the Catholic Party. In the Netherlands, you had a Reformed Party. The Anti-Revolutionary Party was its name. <laughs> so in politics for a while, some kind of input was retained. But uh, even that virtually disappeared after the th uh, 30s. And uh, today there is no effort to apply it. And most people are ignorant of the fact that the faith has to be universal for a Catholic in its application. Well, I would say that they're, that they're not only ignorant, they're extremely some. Uh, certainly the people I run into, for some reason, seem to be very hostile. Maybe I have something to do with that. But they're very hostile to the idea that, yes. that God is to be the God of everything. Now, as, you, as both of you know, I am a, a recent convert. I was baptized a little over two and a half years ago, and uh, my three children with me. I'm 43 years old. And what uh, astounds me over and over is to run into people, meet them, uh, people who say they're Christians, and I begin talking or asserting things as if we all agreed on them, only to find out that uh, uh, there, there's, no, there's virtually no agreement at all. I, I was at a luncheon one time where Richard John Newhouse uh, spoke, uh, and he's the man who's written this new book, uh, The Naked uh, Public Square. And uh, I was talking to him about whether or not in his judgment uh, the... Uh, that's where you get the ear of those kind of people. If you ask them to give you their judgment first and they're all ears, uh, the trick, of course, is to keep their ear. But anyway, I said, in your judgment... Does the Bible say anything about civil government or what the role of it ought to be? I was going to talk to him about whether or not he thought the modern welfare state was uh, compatible with Scripture. Well, I mean, the, the, the question wasn't even fully completed before there's kind of the wrinkling of the nose, and clearly it is a, a dis, uh, sort of a disgusting question and, and painful for him. And basically the answer, as I recall it, was that, uh, John, you've got to be very, very careful about applying this, uh, I don't even know if he called it the Word of God, uh, applying the Bible to everyday life. And he said this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And I, and I quickly agreed and said that, in fact, I could think of only one other thing more dangerous, uh, and that was not attempting to apply the Bible to Good. everyday life. But over and over and over, I meet Christians, and I talk to them at length, and for the life of me, I do not know what they think God is the God of. Yeah. It is a frantic search with them to find something. Is it sports? Is it, uh, you know, religion? Well, what is he the God of? And, and they have a very difficult time telling you where they think God's Word ought to govern. He is really an abstraction for them. They yes. read the book, they know the verses. Yes, I'm familiar with your idea, John, but where do I think God really ought to govern? Gee, I, uh, this is a very dangerous question, you know. Yes. You remember last hmm. night I told you, or yesterday noon, I believe it was, um, something I plan to write about. Uh, Dr. Charles Rice of the Notre Dame uh, University School of Law has written an excellent analysis of the so-called right of privacy. Mm -hmm. And it's a growth in uh, Supreme Court decisions in terms of American law. Now, you have either God is God or you have man as God. And original sin is the temptation of Genesis 3, 5, ye shall be as God, 
knowing, determining for yourself what is good and evil, making your own laws you go along. Well, as man has become the center, this right of privacy has grown so that uh, man no longer feels that God has any right to interfere or anyone has any right to interfere. And you remember the illustration I gave you, <laughs> this very, very attractive young woman in her early 20s who was in her bedroom one day during the daytime with her lover, and her husband walked in unexpectedly and beat up on the uh, lover and threw him out. And while he was doing this, this young woman called for the police. And when they came, she demanded that her husband be arrested. Why? He had violated her right to privacy. Now, well, <clears throat> I, I imagine he was arrested. Oh, no, he was not. The police just laughed in her face, and she really wondered what the world was coming to. Oh, she yeah. was indignant for almost weeks over oh. that. Well, let me bounce an idea off you as to maybe why this is happening. As man sees himself as God, he wants to turn himself into... Uh, each man wants to be like his own Ark of the Covenant. He, yes. he, he wants a holy of holies around him. You're not allowed to touch. He probably, some, many would probably prefer that you would die if you touched them. That, that they do substitute, that, that as they become yes. God, then they want like sort of a, a moving temple around them, a there zone of, uh, <laughs> you cannot approach, or at least on all fours when you come up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They retain the form uh, as they uh, see themselves becoming God. They want to be worshipped, which and, means this zone of privacy. And cor correspondingly, they turn God into Santa Claus. He throws yes. lollipops down from heaven. He doesn't bring troubles. Despite oh, the loving, despite the example of God. Jesus, right. God does not uh, approve of suffering. And this carries us back to what my my observations before. I mean. The Catholic hierarchy, and at least in the Vatican, is having a great deal of difficulty restoring to its numerous uh, congregations around the world some idea of their responsibility as Christians. Mm -hmm. This is where deliberation theology is proceeding so rapidly. And what really amazed me when presumably sophisticated network commentators getting a million dollars or more a year didn't recognize liberation theology when it was placed in the American idiom and brought tears to the eyes of those delegates. I'd like to add a footnote to what I had said earlier about this whole uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, Ferraro, and Bishop O'Connor business because I, I was personally very heartened by Bishop O'Connor's forceful uh, speaking out on this question of abortion and homosexuality. Uh, my point is that I hope he follows through and does uh, and makes uh, you know a, a real tough decision on what has to be done here. Otherwise, I think it will been he will have demonstrated uh, his weakness by striking but missing or just issuing a statement and then letting uh, well, uh, them forget the, about it. Look at the difficulty that he confronts with uh, uh, congregation uh, leaders like Cuomo and Ferraro. Sure. Oh, there's no doubt it. But see, he's into it already. He's already spoken out. He's stressed this position, and he's going to be looked upon as a, uh, a man who lacks the courage of his uh, religious convictions if he just issues a statement and does nothing else. I happen to think that if he moved to excommunicate Cuomo or Ferraro, that it would uh, just electrify Catholics across this country and would bring that particular faith together as they have never been brought together uh, before in modern times, and indeed all Christians in America would cheer this man. Imagine someone who, who not only issued a statement, but when it was ignored, he followed through. Whether it stuck or not is problematical. I mean, he can only run so far in the race. They could ignore it or whatever, but the point is he would have, uh, he would have gone all the way with this, and that's... Uh, 
That would be almost unprecedented in these times. But it's got to be done. Or else he's going to be seen as a man who is not serious, who just is sort of like another bureaucrat issuing press releases, and they throw him in the trash, and then he just uh, continues to greet him with a smile at receptions as if nothing had happened, see? Well, of course, this is reflective of the great division that's running throughout Christendom, where a remnant, so to speak, is uh, struggling. It's gaining. It's increasing in numbers. Mainline churches of all descriptions are, have been losing people because they have allowed the congregation to drift away from uh, the Word of God. You That's know, so they, 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 the loss of faith really begins with the clergy. Yes. Mm. And uh, it's, in, it's, it's unwillingness. It's fear of applying the discipline that's necessary to keep any community together, whether it's a religious community, a political community, or any other community. Lack of discipline runs through the whole American society like well, a thread. Well, it does. Thread. It does. And, uh, and this, is, this is one of the reasons why we can't seem to get together on uh, military defense, on the budget, on any subject. You know, one of the things that... Uh, that really came home to me when I read about some of the early uh, church council debates is that this was a meeting held to establish what was true and all those outside of this circle of truth or beyond the line of truth, however you want to say it, they were out. Yes. I mean, this was a real argument about what was true. Now, the modern church council, the idea is we meet to come together. Yes. Uh, right. Truth if we happen to discover some accidentally, well, no one's going to uh, uh, be angry, but it is in no way the central idea of the meeting. Well, mm -hmm. don't forget that the Truth essential element, the, the pillar of a democracy, is that majority rules. If the majority of a people cannot determine their own destiny, then you cannot discuss them as a democratic nation. But in that convention in San Francisco, it was the minority that was extolled, and the majority that was excluded. Now, to exclude or to ignore the majority of the American people is uh, essentially tyrannical. Whether you put it in those terms or not, your idea is tyrannical because you mean you want as a minority to tell the majority to shut up and take their orders. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, the congregations of all the churches are not consulted, and many of the mainline churches changed and liberalized their theology and didn't consult the congregation, didn't ask the congregation what its opinion was, didn't take a vote, didn't have discussions, just said the prelates or the, uh, the ministers just said, well, we're going to change your Book of Common Prayer or whatever because we think that it's good for you. So well, but all the same sort of yes. tyrannical, <clears throat> anti-majoritarian reasoning coming out. And, of course, you can't have an informed majority without discussion. Well, I, I, I think, well, I, I agree this is absolutely true, but you wonder why is there so little outcry from among these congregations? And I think uh, it, it is for this reason they don't know their Bible. Because yeah. for them, their religion is whatever their church does. They, they don't have any standard by which to judge their church. Matter of yeah. fact, the idea that there is some standard by which we should judge our pastor or our board would be gr probably grounds for expulsion from the church. That, the, the ecclesiastical arrangement has be, is, is their scripture. That's right. Uh, they just know nothing. The group. Sure. Whatever our, our hierarchy does. And this is not, not just Catholics either. I mean, this no. must be stressed. By no means. <laughs> no. Just the entire religious yeah. establishment. Whatever they say is right because they say it. Okay. And we don't want to hear anything out of you, Lofton, right, with this Bible. Be thumping this Bible in here. Do we have, you know, really well, amazing. Well, what is happening now, however, is that there are Bible study groups, Catholic and Protestant, all over the United States. And there is a tremendous and growing groundswell of informed Christians. I hope so. Uh, the militancy, for example, in things like pro-life is uh, rarely...
primarily on the part of the clergy. It's primarily on the part of the laity. Mm -hmm. And in virtually every group where you have to make a moral stand, you have a few clergymen who have done remarkable work. But by and large, it's the laity who are saying, something has to be done here. And uh, I think... Uh, this is the foundation of uh, true renaissance in the churches. The people no longer can leave it to the clergy. And, and you shouldn't have in any event. Yes. Can you say exactly. uh, can you say quickly whether or not there's a precedent for this uh, grassroots up, this laity up movement? Well, you would never have had the councils of the early church which defined the faith. For example, Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon, without that kind of laity. There was a tremendous discussion among the laity on the issues. Today, people read those uh, confessions and say, well, this is highly subtle and involved doctrine. Are we saying here that our faith but is too important to be left to our preachers? Yes. <laughs> then it was the barbershop talk, and we have records of that. Mm -hmm. Well, our time is really up. It's been uh, a delight to have you here, John. Oh, we'll look forward to seeing you again whenever you need to rest from the wilds thank of Washington, <laughs> San Francisco, frequently. or New York. <laughs> thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll be with you again in two weeks.